welcome back to the Small Business Show. I'm your host, Lori Brooks. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. This week, I have the absolute pleasure of chatting with Tim Gurick, CEO and founder of Tier One Capital. Tim is a highly accomplished financial consultant, veteran, and thought leader in his industry. As the founder and CEO of Tier One Capital, he spent over 35 years helping thousands of people across the country achieve their financial goals. Today, Tim is here to share with us the Tier One Capital's formula for helping small business owners and entrepreneurs find the cash flow in their own practice. Tim, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Lori, it's my pleasure, and I'm glad to be here. Well, I am super excited to dive into your journey as an entrepreneur, but before we do, I want to rewind the clock just a bit. I want to go back to the days of, say, junior high or high school, and I want for you to share a story of a time long before entrepreneurship became a thought process for you. What did you think life was going to look like in the future? I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I always had odd jobs, raking leaves, cutting grass. You know, I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day, and I had a side business selling fireworks, <laughs> of all things. It was illegal at the time, but I was... We won't tell was, anybody that. <laughs> well, you know, that, that ship sort of sailed, but... And it happened so innocently, because I was mm -hmm. walking down the street, and a friend of mine was had some firecrackers and we asked him for some and he sold them to us. And I recognized that he really overcharged us. Yeah. So I was just trying to find a way to get them cheaper. And I did. And then when I had them, somebody, another kid came up to me and said, hey, I'll buy some off you. And then I realized that this could be a pretty good business. So it was a very good business. <laughs> you you learned early. There is a way to turn a profit. I absolutely love it. Exactly. I was probably 12 or 13 at the time. Wow. It was definitely very early on for sure. That's great. The entrepreneurial bug bit you early and that was it. So you already knew early on I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be able to turn a profit. What do you feel were some of the first steps you took? And I was always good with numbers. I'll, I always seem to be very good with numbers. So I started, you know, when I went to college, looking at <laughs> becoming a math major and everything was going swimmingly well until Calc 2. And then uh, that was sort of like the weeder course for everything. And I, <laughs> I did not make the cut. So in my sophomore year, I switched majors to economics and that really suited me. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. you know, I think everything happens for a reason and I really, really enjoyed economics. And so I was, I just devoured that. And then, mm -hmm. you know, when I, when I graduated college, mm -hmm. wanting to utilize my major, I basically, I had three choices. I could go into the banking industry, the investment industry, or the insurance industry. And a good friend of mine, his dad was in insurance mm -hmm. and everybody knew him. Everybody liked him. He was a really nice guy and a really good 
person. And at the end of the day, I, I chose that path. Now, morphing forward, our industry changed to a full financial services type industry where you know investment firms were offering insurance and banking and mm -hmm. banks were offering investments and insurance and right. insurance companies were offering banking and investments yep so platform exactly but i'll tell you this i'm a very relationship oriented person and consequently the best track for me was insurance because it's a very relationship oriented business it's not a transactional business such as banking and investing. You know, when I was a kid, nobody ha had a financial advisor. There was no, that term wasn't even, you know, wasn't even on the map. Right, right. What people had were called stockbrokers. And Excuse only me. rich people had stockbrokers. Yes, yes. Because poor people couldn't buy them. So consequently, Again, that became a transactional business, and now it's sort of morphed into something different. Well, again, for me, the path that I had chosen was really the best path for me because as the industries changed and sort of went into full-scale financial uh, advice, now I was able to, I had the relationship part down pretty well. And now the, the next thing was just putting the other pieces together, and that sort of fell into place for me. So you really found your way into the financial services industry based off of interests, comfort levels, and the ebbs and flows of what you were interested in and what you were good at matched up, paired together, and turned into you landing in the financial services industry. So I am very interested as to how it is you went from financial in sales and insurance into making the decision to run your own practice versus remaining under an umbrella industry such as MetLife or one of the bigger banks. So I'll tell you what the what the tipping point was for me. Mm -hmm. The Christmas of 1993. Mm -hmm. I'm at my parents' house. I'm the middle of three children and my brother is older, my sister is younger. And we were sitting around after dinner on Christmas Day, and we're talking about the good old times. And we brought up the time where we went to get my dad's pay, and our car wouldn't start. My dad would get paid every Thursday, and he would normally come home with his pay. But sometimes he would not have his pay because the guy who owned the plant went home for lunch and his wife did the payroll. And sometimes he would get the checks and stop off at a bar before he got back to the plant. And when my dad's shift was over, he wasn't there. So those times as a kid were adventurous because my mom would take me, my brother, and my sister, put us in the car after dinner and drive up and we would sit in front of this man's house until he came home. And as an aside, there were two things that I learned from that. Number one, if I was ever going to be in business, my employees were never going to have to chase me down for their money mm. because I know how degrading that was. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing was 
Oh, so, so I'll get to the second thing. But so then we got this particular time, we got my dad's pay and then our car wouldn't start. Oh no. So then my brother, you know, knocked on the door, used the phone, called my uncle. My uncle came and picked us up and then we had to get the car eventually towed. So again, that was really embarrassing. So Christmas of 93, we're talking about the good old days, talking about the time the car wouldn't start. And I remember saying to my mom, what were we doing there? And she goes, well, I was, you know, we were getting daddy's pay. And I said, well, why don't you just wait till the next day? And Lori, I'll never forget the look she shot me. She said, honey, we live pay to pay. If I didn't have that pay, they're going to turn off the gas or the electricity or the phone. And she said, we needed that money and we didn't need it tomorrow. We needed it tonight. And so the second thing that came out is, okay, you can't live pay to pay. But now here I am the Christmas of 93. And it hit me like a baseball bat across my eyes. I was living pay to pay. Now I'm, I'm at this point, I'm making six to seven times what my dad ever made. Mm -hmm. I was single living alone. I had, I maxed out my 401k. I was paying down my debt as quickly as possible, my mortgages, but I had credit cards and my, because my income was fluctuating, mm -hmm. you know, some weeks I'd have a good, good, good pay. And some weeks I would, you know, the, it's all based on sales. Well, I would embarrassingly borrow money from my dad to pay my mortgage because I didn't have the money or the funds available to do it. And that's when I, I realized this is not right. Mm -hmm. I'm making too much money to be living pay to pay. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized that the advice that I was giving people was the same advice that I was living mm -hmm. and I was broke. Mm -hmm. I was always led to believe that the reason you don't have money is because you don't make enough. Mm -hmm. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. What I learned is it's how you're using your money that sort of prevents us from having access to that money. I was on paper, Lori, I looked really good. Mm -hmm. I had over 150,000 at the time. I was in my early 30s, over 150,000 in a 401k. I had about $60,000 of equity in real estate. Mm -hmm. On paper, I, <clears throat> on paper I looked really good, right. but I was broke because I couldn't access that money. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized that there's something going on here. Right. I fixed it very quickly on my own. And then I started taking those ideas and concepts to my clients. Mm. And I started packaging this cash flow issue in conjunction with things like exit strategy and succession planning and mm. key person retention planning. And here's what I found. Our industry, financial services, is incredibly good at uncovering problems. Mm. I'll sit down with you We'll talk about your business and I'll uncover in 10 minutes, three or four problems. We're incredibly good 
at putting a price tag on the solution to your problem. Our industry is terrible at showing you how to find the money to pay for the solutions of the problem. And that's my secret sauce. That's what I do. When I work with business owners, we show them how to find the cash flow within their current, find the money within their current cash flow to pay for a succession plan or to pay for an exit strategy or to show them how to retain their key people. You know, the great resignation, over 4 million people per month quit their jobs. Now, if you're a small business owner, that's life or death. If one of your key people leaves, you're in trouble that's because it, it it hurts in any business when a key mm -hmm. person leaves, but it's especially difficult in a small business. That person who left might be the only person within your geographical area mm -hmm. that knows, that has the talent to do the job that he was doing. So that could be life or death for a business. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My point is that I was able, through necessity, because of my own issues, I was mm -hmm. able to sit, create a situation where I could find the money to solve the problems. With Tier 1 Capital, you are really, truly not just assisting clients, but small business owners specifically with setting up a road, roadmap for their financial plan for their business, but also helping them find the money to help them move forward with life and with their business. So it sounds like you have been through quite a bit throughout the years. You've had those moments of struggle and those moments of struggle have clearly played into your formation of tier one. Yeah. So one of the major things we look at is the cash flow. We commissioned a research uh, study and what we found is that, and this is according to Intuit, 61% of small business owners around the world struggle with chronic or cyclical cash flow issues. 69% of small business owners either sleep less or admit to losing sleep due to cash flow concerns. And here's the rub, Lori. What I found over 38 years of experience is that most or all of these cash flow issues are self-inflicted. Yes. It's yeah. how we're using our money. And yeah. what we refer to that as the financial golf swing. Mm -hmm. Now, here, here's, here's the way our industry works. Dirty little secret. You come down, you, you sit down with a, a financial advisor and you're thinking like, okay, this person is the solution to my problems. But what you don't realize is you're the solution to their problem. Mm -hmm. And so here's what happens. You go and you give them all your statements and all your stuff. Mm -hmm. And you think, you know, you, you look at your husband, you say, oh, honey, we did financial planning because we gave all these problems to Tim. Well, that ain't the way it works. Right. You're right. solving this guy's problem. Right. And what financial planning is, in my eyes, it's participatory. Mm -hmm. You've got to participate in that whole process. But the key here is what the industry does is they basically say, okay, show me everything you got. Everything you have stinks. Come 
to me and my stuff is the best. Right. So to use a golf analogy, show me your golf clubs. You don't, you need, you need a new set of golf clubs. Come to my pro shop. I'll sell you a new set of clubs. Mm -hmm. Ours, that's not the way we work. What we do is we say, Lori, I don't know whether or not I can help you. Mm -hmm. But what I need to do is take a look at how you're using your money. So let's go down to the practice range. I want to see your swing. I want to see how you're using your money. And then I'm going to make some tweaks or some adjustments to how you're using your money. And then you might need a new club or two, but in all probability, you won't need a whole bag of clubs. Mm. And, and so again, think of it this way, you know, I could get Tiger Woods's golf clubs mm -hmm. and I'm still going to be an 18 handicap. <laughs> Tiger could take my golf clubs right. and he's going to be Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. It ain't the club. It's, mm -hmm. it's the person who's swinging the club mm -hmm. and it's the same thing in finance. Right. It's not the amount of income you have. It's not the amount of revenue you have. It's how you're utilizing it. Mm -hmm. And if I may, I could share with you some practical examples of businesses that we helped looking at their situation where they thought they didn't have the money to pay for the solutions. Mm -hmm. So we worked with a grocery store about five or six years ago. Yeah. And they had one, there were five partners and one of the partners was sick and they had been paying him for several years and they needed to buy him out. And the other four partners were in their fifties and they wanted to set up an exit strategy for themselves because they, mm -hmm. they experienced what, what could happen. So we looked at that solution and we put a price tag on it. And it was going to cost about $25,000 per month mm -hmm. to buy out the one brother and then to provide an exit strategy for the other four. Mm -hmm. So all that being said, when we looked at the CFO of the company, I turned to her and said, how much monthly cash flow do you think you can, you know, you can put your hands on? Mm -hmm. And she said, if we really tighten our belts we could probably come up with $5,000 per month. I said, well, the solution's 25. Mm -hmm. What do you suggest? And then, you know, the president said, well, I guess we can't solve the problem. And I said, so my response, having looked at their finances, if I were to tell you that you have the money within your current cash flow to pay for this, you're just using your money inefficiently, what would you do? Mm. Now, think of this. Everybody was at that table was incredulous, thinking that, how dare you think that we're using our money inefficiently, right? Because everybody thinks that what they're doing is- It's right? the best. Right? It's the best, but not only is it the best, you would never knowingly wake up in the morning, look yourself in the mirror and say, I wonder how I'm gonna screw myself up today financially. What can I do to screw <laughs> myself up, right? Nobody does that. But here's the deal. 
we do it unknowingly and unnecessarily. Yeah. Right, right. So what we do is we show people where they're giving away control of their money. Mm-hmm. That's an easy step. Because right. if I were to sit down with you, Lori, and I looked at it, I might come up with four or five areas where you're giving up control of your money. Mm-hmm. And I would guarantee you that you would agree 100% that, yes, I am giving up control of their of that money. Mm-hmm. But here's the catch. The second step in our process is the hardest step. You got to stop doing what you've been doing for 20 some odd years. Right. And that's the hardest part. So Mm -hmm. we have a four-step process. Number one, we identify where you're giving up control. Number two, you stop doing it. Number three, we show you where to put that money so that you're always in complete and constant control of it. And number four, this fourth step is where the magic happens, where you literally borrow money from yourself and pay interest back to yourself. Now, if you step back from that model, your money never leaves your control. You're borrowing from yourself and paying interest back to yourself. That's where you get into to to be in larger, larger control of your cash flow and your cash. And we do that on a daily basis for hundreds and thousands of businesses. I absolutely adore that, Tim. I love how you took financial planning. And despite the fact that many others took the holistic financial planning meme, you truly made this a holistic planning scenario where you're not just looking at what products have been purchased previously across the board. And you're truly looking at how people are going about utilizing the funds that are truly coming in the door and going out the door. And what that looks like as a whole is a different creature for every person. And it really does take some time to dive into it to really help people weed out those areas that can help them. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Most of our clients come to us in crisis, mm-hmm. right? So we have we have one partner who's sick and we want to buy him out. Right. Or, you know, my child, my oldest child is a senior in high school. And he's he or she's going to be going to school in next June, and we didn't do any planning, and it's going to cost forty two grand a year to send them to school. Mm-hmm. How do we do it? We do that every day, but our best clients, our really best clients, are the ones who don't even think they need us. And I, I want to share this. This is one of my greatest success stories. So I met with this guy back in twenty nineteen. And he came highly referred from a very good client of mine who was a lifelong friend of his. And they Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, as they started their businesses and grew their families, they sort of went on diverging paths, but really good, strong uh, bond uh, growing up. So when I met with the, the gentleman who I was referred to, he said, hey, listen, you know, Jeff was a really good friend of mine. I'll, I'll let you in the door just because of, of our friendship. But I want to tell you, I've got two financial advisors and I meet with my CPA on a monthly basis. If there was anything that I needed or that I should know about, I'm sure these people would have told me about it. Right. So I said, well, listen, worst thing that's going to happen here is we'll meet for 20 minutes and we'll, when we leave, I'll have a new friend and you'll have a new friend. 
And he said, yeah, that's reasonable. So we sat down and, you know, Lori, sure enough, I meet with him. Mm -hmm. He and his wife have nearly a million dollars in their retirement account. Mm -hmm. They own a business with four locations. They own the real estate in all four of those locations. Mm -hmm. And on the surface, everything looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I started asking him a little bit about some of their debt. And he indicated that he had two business loans in addition to the mortgages on the on the buildings. He had two business loans and an open line of credit. And my assumption was, <clears throat> my assumption was that the loans were created to purchase equipment for each of these locations, one, one or two of the locations of his business. And as it turns out, he he created those loans because he paid his quarterly taxes using draws on his credit line. So what would happen is the draws, the line would max out, mm -hmm. the bank would make it a term loan and open up another line. So he had two of those loans. One was in the first year and the other one was in the fifth year. And he also had an open line of credit. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I asked this gentleman, how much income do you make? And he said, $650,000. Mm -hmm. And my next question was, when you were in school, and this at the time he was in his early 40s, I said, when you were in college, what income number were you shooting for? He said, you know, it was probably 150 to 200,000. Now think about that. That's, you know, 20 years ago. That's before all this funny money was printed. That was that was good money, right? <laughs> so I started laughing when he told me that. And he goes, what's so funny? And I said, isn't it ironic that you're making three to four times what you ever dreamed you could make mm -hmm. and you can't pay your darn quarterly taxes without taking a draw on your credit line? And he just shot back his head back and he goes, geez, I never thought of it that way. That's just the way I do it. And here's the deal. I said, you have been conditioned to accept as normal something that is not to your benefit. Yes. Yeah. The system teaches us to be dependent on the system. Mm -hmm. And if you could break that bond or that dependency, you could realize the profits that the bank's making. Mm -hmm. I said, my next question was, would it be worth 45 minutes of your time if I can show you how you never will, you will never ever have to take another draw on your credit line to pay your quarterly taxes. Now it's not going to happen overnight, but eventually we'll get there. So this was the summer of 2019. In the fall, in October of 2019, we put a plan together because there was an education process. We had to teach him where he was giving up control of his money. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he starts the plan. Now, fast forward to June of 2020, he left his CPA's office. He texted me, said, Tim, I just want you to know, we filed our 2019 taxes on extension. I just left Brian's office. Brian is a CPA. Mm -hmm. We had enough money set aside to pay our tax obligation for 2019, but better yet, I have right now enough money set aside to pay my September quarterly, my January quarterly, 
And for what we estimate we're going to owe in April for 2020. Thanks for all you do for me and my family. Now, Lori, I will ask you this. Is that a good story? That's an absolutely perfect story. Well, it is. <laughs> so let me fast forward to December of 2022, this past mm -hmm. December. Mm -hmm. His business now has seven locations. Mm. He owns the real estate on all seven. We meet in my office at seven o'clock, me, his CPA, and the client. I know what he has with me, but I don't know what he has in all of these other businesses. And because of the way that we taught him to utilize his money, the financial golf swing, when you add up all seven of those businesses, plus the cash he has with me, $1.8 million of cash on hand. Now, here's the point. <laughs> well, here we did, right? But here's the point. This guy always had the ability to have that kind of money sitting around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was just using his money inefficiently. And when we flipped the switch for him, now it's it's like an obsession. Because here's what we found. When you start looking at things from the perspective of getting a higher rate of return or paying lower interest rates, your eye is literally taken off the ball. But when you look at things through the lens of being in control of your money and your cash flow, all the decisions that you make, you make with much, much greater clarity. Mm -hmm. Because it's real simple. If I do this, will I be in greater control or less control of my money? Oh, less control? Okay. How about if I do this? Oh, if I do this, I'll be in greater control? All right. This is my decision. And when you do that, now you have... This guy will never... And here's the great thing. The amount of money that he had in December of 22, it's greater today. And it's going to be greater tomorrow because of the, the switch that we flipped for him. Mm -hmm. Now, like I said, it's an obsession. And now he knows the right thing to do. But our industry teaches you things that are beneficial to the industry, but not so much to you as an individual. So hopefully that, that makes sense. No, it certainly, certainly does. Perceived reality inspires successful minds. That's actually the titles of, of a program that I use with clients. And it sounds like what you've done is you've taken your financial services practice and added in that mindset transformation piece for them. So you're looking at a holistic view of not just their, their lifestyle, but their business, their activities, and really taking all of it and making them recognize the alternate perspective that they can have that'll help them actually make the changes in order to find that cash flow within their own practice. So to be honest, Tim, it sounds like you're waving that magic wand for each and every one of your clients. <laughs> oh, we are. So here's the deal. You know, looking at, at the industry, 71% of small businesses have some form of debt. Mm -hmm. But if you sit down with, a, if a small business owner sits down with a financial advisor, They've never addressed the debt. Right. So how can you be holistic? How can you be mm -hmm. comprehensive when you're not addressing the What's elephant in the room? Right. Which is right. 
the debt is is what's probably killing these business owners, which mm -hmm. is preventing them from putting more money away. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, and sometimes preventing them from signing an application altogether. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I 100% agree. And I absolutely adore how you've made it so that there's a, a perspective change along with the planning. I think it's probably one of the most important pieces that has been ignored in the financial services industry. So in some way, shape or form, I feel like you've already waved that magic wand and started working on the one change that really truly would change the financial services industry, making sure that people have a, a true holistic perspective of their own finances, not just their income, but the debt that's attached and the cash flow that they actually are working with or could have to work with if they paid more attention to certain areas. That's definitely something that would make an enormous change for a lot of people, not just small business owners, the <laughs> average person. <laughs> has plenty of different things they can change, you know, habitually that that would make a, a greater impact to their overall financial success. So I thank you for sharing all about how it is you're working with your clients. If you had the opportunity to go back, say, 10 or 15 years and tell yourself just one thing before you actually started on the entrepreneurial path, before you got into the financial services industry and started obtaining licenses, if you could have told yourself one thing way back when, what do you feel like that would have been? So I live by this. I am never afraid of failure, mm. right? I have done so many things that didn't work out in the past. Mm. And so you can't, number one, be afraid to fail, take a chance. Mm. But number two, don't dwell on it if it's if it's if it's a failure, right? Just learn from it. And one of the things that I've always taught my my kids, and I've taught when I was coaching Little League, I always used to tell the kids, listen, the last play we can't control. It's over. Mm -hmm. The most important play is the next one. Mm -hmm. So let's just focus on moving forward. Learn from what you did, learn from that mistake. Yeah. But then move forward. And if you look at that from that perspective, there's no such thing as a wasted experience. Every experience you have gets you to the next point. And, right. you know, I wouldn't, honestly, I wouldn't change anything in the past. I, I have no regrets. I, I, I don't ask for do-overs. I just think tomorrow's going to be the best day of my life. I love that. And I'm positive the audience 100% gets why I'm cracking up inside right now because they're so tired of hearing me say this on this show. <laughs> My <laughs> child is also tired of hearing me say it, Tim. There's no such thing as failure. There's only feedback. As long as you take it and you grow from it, it's feedback. There's no such thing as failure. So I thank you so much for closing the show. One of my favorite thoughts, Tim, you have been outstanding. And I truly enjoyed diving into your practice and really hearing about how it is you're transforming the lives of small business owners across the globe. So please share how our viewers can get in touch with you. Yeah, so you can go to our website, www.tier1capital, that's T-I-E-R, the digit one, C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. And we have, if you go to 
tieronecapital.com slash free gift. We have a free report and I think that you'll find it very educational and, you know, it can sort of help you on the journey or whatever journey you're, you're, you're on to maybe get some more clarity going forward. Excellent. I absolutely will be sure to include both of those links on the show notes page. Tim, I thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you for having me. And I really enjoyed our time.